You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and I am at the Northeast Lipid Association meetings in Philadelphia. And I had a chance to corner Dr. Perry Weinstock, who is the Director of Clinical Cardiology at Cooper University Hospital, who is considered the area's expert in the management of complex lipid disorders. And Dr. Weinstock and I are going to talk a little bit about the COURAGE trial and what it means to all of us. Dr. Perry Weinstock, would you mind just kind of going through the basics of, of the COURAGE trial for the audience? Sure. Well, the COURAGE trial, uh, uh, principal investigator was Dr. Bill Bowden, who also joined us uh, last night via teleconference. But the COURAGE trial was a look at stable coronary artery disease patients, that is, patients who are not experiencing acute coronary syndromes or ST segment elevation, myocardial infarction, but rather the rest of the population of stable coronary patients, to see whether a strategy of optimal medical therapy versus optimal medical therapy plus percutaneous coronary intervention, if there would be any difference. And the theory would be that perhaps the percutaneous coronary intervention plus optimal medical therapy group might have an advantage because they're revascularizing the blood vessels. But the investigators were hoping to show that optimal medical therapy by itself might be sufficient to stabilize plaques and that you didn't need the intervention. So that's sort of what was behind the trial in its planning stages. And what the trial indeed looked at was several thousand patients, about 3,000 patients that had met the entry criteria, had stable coronary artery disease, and then they were randomized to patients that underwent percutaneous coronary intervention plus optimal medical therapy versus optimal medical therapy alone. And I should add that these were patients that had a significant angiographic stenosis. They had to have at least a 70% coronary artery lesion with some evidence of ischemia or they could have an 80% lesion and a Canadian cardiology class uh, 2 or greater uh, angina. And these uh, patients were then enrolled and randomized. And what was interesting in the trial was that the optimal medical therapy group seemed to do particularly well, certainly early on uh, did very well. And the percutaneous coronary intervention group plus optimal medical therapy group had some initial issues clinically because of a slight increase in myocardial infarction rates early on over the first few years of the trial. But actually, the main finding of this trial was that over five years, approximately five years, there was no difference in mortality in the two groups, meaning that the percutaneous intervention did not convey a mortality benefit uh, to these patients, that optimal medical therapy alone was sufficient to maintain. What are you considering as optimal medical therapy? What does that consist of? That was a very important part of this trial because optimal medical therapy involved the use of antiplatelet agents such as aspirin. It involved beta blockers, uh, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, the use of statins, all to targets to the goals basically that the National Cluster Education Program uh, and other agencies have recommended. And, and in addition, in diabetics, it was to aim for a hemoglobin A1C below 7%. So they were trying to modify all the modifiable risk factors with aggressive medications, as well as lifestyle, including diet and exercise programs. One of the questions asked last night, which kind of sums the whole thing up, is that if you have someone in the cath lab already who has stable angina and you've cathed them 
and you find whatever, a 50, a 60, a 70% stenosis, and this person is hyped up on Versed, and you're supposed to have a discussion with this patient at that time what to do with their anatomy due to the common oculostenotic reflex and the potential financial benefits of putting in a stent, although every cardiologist doesn't think like that, but some do, you're going to end up coming out of that cath lab with two, three stents when this trial obviously shows that you may not have needed those stents. It's a long question. So what if we didn't do angiograms and instead did CT angiograms and then sat down and had a conversation with the patient and taught them about the disease and then, if they failed a stress test, then consider doing a revascularization. It seems like it would save billions of dollars for the insurance companies doing it that way. And right now, they won't pay for a CAT scan. It's crazy. I think that you've touched on one of the implications of the COURAGE trial, but I should go back and say that you know the COURAGE trial did not involve CT angiography. It did right. involve you know, direct coronary angiography, so I don't know that we can extrapolate necessarily because the two techniques are different. But what it does tell us, I think, most importantly, is that if you knew somebody's anatomy and if you knew that they had a clinically stable disease, that the potential to quiet or pacify those plaques with medical therapy, that is optimal medical therapy, exists, and that you really don't lose by employing that strategy. In other words, over the years of this trial, the group that was not inter intervened upon did just as well. However, in terms of relief of angina, relief of symptoms, angioplasty and, and percutaneous intervention is very effective. So patients benefit symptomatically, if not by mortality. And, and so the point that I want to make is sometimes the patients demand these procedures. It's not always the doctor that says, oh, you need to have this because I said you need to have it. Sometimes the patients drive that decision-making thinking they're going to be better off with an intervention. The point of this study, the COURAGE trial, was that they may not necessarily be, if you will, better off in terms of mortality, although it's possible that they certainly would see, and as was seen here, a reduction in angel episodes per week. However, over the five years, both groups, that is the optimal medical therapy alone group versus the PCI or percutaneous intervention plus optimal medical therapy group, had about the same episodes of angina in the end over the five years, which means that the early advantage of PCI in terms of angina reduction kind of went away. However, again, there's always more. There was crossover in the group that got just optimal medical therapy. About 32% eventually did require revascularization. So, so although their anginal scores were equal at the end, there was some revascularization. Dr. Bowden, who was the principal investigator, points out that actually the angina was reduced even without the intervention and that it would have met the level of statistical significance anyway, but he can discuss that. I think the take-home message for a clinician, and, and I practice medicine every day, I, you know, I'm at the bedside taking care of patients. Are, are you doing any intervention? I myself am not interventional. Your uh, partner, do you have partners that... Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I run a division that has, you know, many sure. uh, aggressive interventionalists. And, you know, I think that the way of looking at all things in medicine is, you know, do the right thing. Do the right thing for the patient. We certainly don't need to be putting stents where they don't belong. I think uh, that's, that's clearly not the thing to do. But many patients feel that unless they got the stent, they didn't get, you know, the state-of-the-art care. And I think we have to change that mindset, perhaps, to look for evidence-based therapies. 
but I think, again, the take-home message for all physicians, regardless of what type of medicine they practice, is that optimal medical therapy is a pretty darn good thing. As long as you optimize that medical therapy, which means the patients have to adhere to the regimen. In the COURAGE trial, the adherence rates were particularly high. People stayed on their statins, they stayed on their ACE inhibitors, they stayed on their beta blockers, aspirin, etc., and uh, the adherence rates were, were superior. So in your clinical practice, if you're letting people sneak away without staying on their medicines or you're letting them make excuses, you know, my patients always have some reason why they can't take something or they don't like something, that really isn't helpful here. You've got to optimize the approach uh, medically. If you do that, then you're not going to run into trouble. The patients that were optimized medically did just as well as the patients that got the PCI over time, and there was no mortality difference. Again, PCI relieves angina, which some would argue is by itself a wonderful thing, and I certainly don't take that away. But if you're looking for a mortality benefit, it wasn't demonstrated in that group. And that's the value of courage. It says it's okay to sit back and manage somebody medically. As long as you're aggressive, you're probably not going to get into trouble. Some of those patients may cross over to an inter interventional strategy later on, and that's fine. In your department, do you do intravascular ultrasounds? Not you personally, but your department. When they're doing a cath or an angiogram, are they looking for besides, let's say, a culprit lesion, are they looking for other vulnerable plaques while they're in there to decide whether or not to place a stent? And if so, are they even adding the, the newer technology, I think that Volcano bought, that does virtual histology so you can actually see, besides just grayscale, if there's, you know, if it's a potentially dangerous plaque that's got a necrotic core, a lot of lipid, a thin cap? Well, these are great questions, and the answer is that we have all these technologies, intravascular ultrasound, etc., but we don't use them routinely. I think they have a place, but they add to the procedure. You know, people don't who don't do intravascular ultrasound don't always realize this is a little bit more invasive than you might think. You have to pass this sure. probe through lesions and image those lesions. So, you know, we it's an investigational tool, in my opinion, that's very effective but not likely going to find its way into everyday practice of interventional cardiology. That's my opinion as a non-interventionalist. So we're not doing it routinely. The other imaging tools that you're talking about, again, I don't have direct experience with, but suffice it to say that we do know that it's frequently the non-flow-limiting plaque that does go on to produce the clinical events. That's been shown for years by numerous investigators. So you do have to be concerned about the less than 50% stenosis that may not cause a defect on nuclear imaging or may not, you know, at the time of the uh, cath procedure be so striking, but could be the one that comes back to haunt you. And that is why that is why I think that optimal medical therapy is mandatory. We need to shut down the vascular biology. We need to change the natural history of this disease. And just putting a piece of metal in a portion of a coronary vessel really isn't addressing the entire length of that artery or the other arteries in the tree. So I think you need both. You need to combine optimal medical therapy, lipid lowering, certainly there's a lipid meeting. You know, in the COURAGE trial, the LDL uh, was brought down aggressively. The majority of patients had LDLs below 85, and uh, many down in the, uh, in the 70s. So that, you know, again, if you do all that, you can pacify these plaques, and so that the 50% or less lesion uh, doesn't go on to progress. I think that's the main lesson uh, for me clinically from this trial. What about an internist who's treating somebody with chest pain and sends them for a stress test and they pass the stress test with flying colors. Everybody has a false sense of security now that this patient has no clinically significant 
coronary artery disease, but, but that's not true. And even if you send him for an angiogram, he mm-hmm. could come back with a normal angiogram and still have significant disease. So if you had to pick a biomarker in 2008 that you feel is of value and of predictive value, what would it be? I think one of the most important biomarkers is one that we don't talk about because it's not that fancy, but that's actually family history. So I want to know, you know, what's that person's family history? And I take a very detailed family history because I think that's important. You know, we have some people that have elevated lipids. They may have elevated C-reactive protein. They may have a lot of things, but everybody in their family lived to be 90 and died of something else. You know, I'm a little bit less concerned. In the population of patients that have a a bad family history, uh, I want to look very aggressively at all their markers and and bring certainly their LDL cholesterol within what our guidelines state. I'd like to thank my guest, Perry Weinstock, for sitting down and talking to me at the Northeast Lipid Association meetings in Philadelphia. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals.